The following program is brought to you by Taste Bud Entertainment. Welcome to an hour of delicious conversation with Chef Jamie Gwynn. Dish with celebrity chefs, cookbook authors, and food experts, and gain inspirational ideas. You'll learn kitchen wisdom, wine education, and culinary trends, and eat and drink like you've never done before. Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwynn starts now. I believe that great cooks aren't born, they're made. A very good Sunday to you, food lovers. Sipping and savoring where knowledge and inspiration is served up right here in your radio every Sunday. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen, and I'm so glad you're with me. This is radio's answer to culinary conversation and inspiration, the culture of food and living the best life. I like to celebrate food and its ability to feed the soul, and I'm all about living the best life. So be sure to tune in. Every Sunday, you'll hear some tech advice, lots of recipe inspiration, a cocktail journey or two. You might even hear about movie, theater, arts, and culture. But I hope that you'll sit down at your kitchen table and soak it all in. And you know what's great about this show? You can even talk with your mouth full. That's right. Dig in because I'm providing an oasis for culinary sanity. You can find me serving up seconds on my website at chefjamie.com. And you'll find me on Facebook and Twitter at Chef Jamie Gwen. Seeing that we are just a couple of weeks away from the start of summer, in fact, the official date, June 21st, in fact, I am already big on burgers and in burger mode. And I posted a burger on the website this past week and got lots of great feedback. So I thought I would kick off this Sunday's show with the topic of burgerology. Yes, that's what the burger craze across the U.S. is being called. It's called burgerology. And the truth is that a great burger is so much more than meat on a bun, right? Do you think that there is any food more quintessentially American than the burger? I mean, the simple act of cooking a patty of ground beef and putting it on a bun is arguably even more American than apple pie. And when done properly, in my opinion, there are few foods that are more delicious. It has been said by burger aficionados that the world can be divided into two types of people. There are burger lovers and there are communists. But the truth is that I believe this beautiful, humble pursuit of the combination of ingredients to make the perfect burger is what brings us such joy. And in whatever variety of form they take, in whatever far-flung reaches of our globe, the delightful, delectable of the perfect burger is what we all seek. So in the words of the venerable Ray Kroc, who said, we take the hamburger business more seriously than anyone else, this is my take on burgerology. Now, I believe that the best burger is a combination of different ground meat. I love when I can go to the butcher and ask him to mix 70% meat and 30% fat. 
but don't tell anybody. That's our secret. I think a brilliant burger is made up of chuck and sirloin. The chuck has great fat content and flavor. The sirloin a bit leaner, but bolder in its flavor profile. And then the beauty of additional meats being added to your burger blend is really what sets you apart from the other burger meisters. Now on the website at chefjamie.com under our think like a chef feature, I have a piece on how to grind your way to a better burger. And you can grind your own meat and combine it to make a signature blend. Or you can ask your butcher at your local butcher shop or the meat department in your favorite supermarket to blend for you. Now, I do always ask for a combination of chuck and sirloin if they're grinding for me or I'll buy a bit of both and blend them myself at home. I do like to add additional flavors, though. Think about brisket or hanger steak or even short rib. In fact, one of the best burgers I've ever had was at Manetta Tavern in New York City. They grind dry-aged steak with short rib and brisket for this big, bold, meaty flavor. They call it a black label burger. Now, I like a little bit of extra fat in my burgers, Okay, I said it. And so I always ask the butcher to throw in a little bit of pork fat for added flavor. You could always chop up a little bit of bacon if you want to make a truly brilliant burger. And then it's all about the way you cook it. I like a good char, a good sear to lock in the juices and allow the fat to distribute through the meat as it cooks. I like a well-seasoned burger, and I like mine preferably off the grill. Or, of course, you can do it in a saute pan on top of the stove. I will say, though, that it's all about what you top it with once you've mastered the art of the perfect grind that really sets your burger apart. So last year, 2013, the egg was dubbed ingredient of the year. You knew that, right? But why not serve your burgers sunny side up? We know that the burger craze across the country is, of course, a fried egg on top, but you could always delight your diners by carving out a bun top, by cutting, use a, you know, a, let's say a cookie cutter or a biscuit cutter or even a round topped glass that you use upside down and cut out the bun top and then insert an egg and grill up that very distinctive egg in a whole burger. Now, when it comes to toppings, I happen to love crunchy toppings on my burger and you can crunchify things up with everything from crushed corn chips to cracklins to uh, dried um, water chestnuts or even canned water chestnuts in the Asian style. I do a Thai turkey burger that I think is delectable with a little bit of crunch. And then, of course, the crunch extends to the sides. A burger is not a burger without some sort of fry, right? Well, your mother always told you to eat your vegetables. Onion rings and french fries have been a burger joint standby for decades. But what we're seeing this year, 2014, in the hottest burger joints across the country is the trend for vegetable fries. So think about zucchini fries, green bean fries, parsnip fries. How about sweet potato fries? I actually like to put them on my burger for a little bit of extra texture and crunch. And then, of course, mini mania is still going strong. So if you're a slider lover, small has been the new big in food for the past few years. I love to make sliders at home as well. And the best chef's tip or trick that I can give you when it comes to sliders is to mix your meat mixture and never 
compound it or compact it too tight. You always want to leave some air, some spaces for that fat to actually release and strewn itself all throughout the meat. That will give you a juicier burger. But when it comes to making sliders, I use a quarter cup measuring cup, a dry measuring cup to make sure my sliders are all the same size and so that they cook evenly as well. It's like perfect portion control in a fun to eat package. Now, when it comes to the best burger recipes, I think my outrageous double cheeseburger with oven roasted tomatoes and roasted garlic mayo reigns supreme. It has been called the best burger ever, but that of course was by a family member. It is a burger creation though, and it's posted at chefjamie.com. You'll also find a barbecue onion jalapeno burger, a grilled lamb burger that I love to make with a tzatziki that's totally and fabulously spiked with ouzo. I make a salmon burger, a turkey burger, an Asian Thai burger. Oh, the opportunities are endless. Check it out at chefjamie.com and hopefully become a burger meister yourself. On the website, it's my goal to make you a better cook in your own kitchen as well. So I write a new feature called Think Like a Chef every week. And this week's feature is dedicated to the movie release just a couple of weeks ago called Chef. Now, if you're a food lover, you've certainly gone to see it. And if you haven't seen it yet, you're missing out. So really, I would say don't miss the experience. It is a heartwarming movie that's full of fabulous food and joy. And it will make you so hungry because in about the middle part of the movie, the chef makes a grilled cheese sandwich that has everyone in the theater drooling. And so I was inspired to grill cheese heaven. Grilled cheese is a simple concept, but there are so many wonderful ways to craft the ever popular sandwich that you could really be in grilled cheese heaven every day. I've given you a little bit of history on the grilled cheese sandwich. And in fact, in 1949, if you didn't know, Kraft Foods introduced Kraft Singles. And I've listed a couple of tips and tricks to make the most fantastic grilled cheese sandwich very simply. Then, of course, some of the best ingredients to add in for fabulous flavor. Check it out. It's at chefjamie.com. And there are a few things more you won't want to miss there. My roasted garlic and balsamic marinade for summer grilling has been posted. It is your all-around go-to, you don't need anything else this summer, marinade recipe, and I hope you'll check it out. I've also posted a grilled s'more because I've been testing recipes on the barbecue and I never met anybody that didn't love a s'more. You'll find a cocktail inspired by the pina colada, something sweet to finish the meal, and so much more. And I hope you'll stay tuned because there's more delicious conversation coming up in your radio. For those of you in Southern California, I hope you're shopping at Smart and Final. You know, I have a passion for Smart and Final. I have for a long time, and I'm very proud to have them back as a supporter of this show. Whether you need a loaf of bread for lunches or a tri-tip for dinner, you're looking for a great price on chicken, you're stocking up on wine, you need an abundant amount of produce, or you're just running in for bananas, Smart and Final has really changed the way 
that you shop. And they're making us rethink the way we shop by changing up Smart and Final stores to be better than ever. Smart and Final has the low prices of a Walmart, the big sizes of a Costco, but no membership fee, and the freshness of your local supermarket all in one place. So check it out. Go to smartandfinal.com, find a store near you, and let me know what you think because Smart and Final knows that life comes in all sizes. You can buy small and large today, and even their exclusive brands, which will match any national brand that you know and love, like their First Street boneless, skinless chicken breasts are on special this week at $1.97 per pound, and you'll find an 18-ounce package of fresh blueberries at just $2.99. Plus, if you're preparing for Father's Day, there's a dad's and grad's gift card promotion going on. Buy $50 in participating gift cards at Smart and Final and get $10 off your next purchase. They also guarantee their Smart and Final brands. Try it, like it, or your money back. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. So sit back, relax, and don't touch your dial. There is so much more delicious conversation coming up. We're dishing with writer Coleman Andrews later in the hour on his usual table. He's the James Beard award-winning writer that we know and love and a really big name in food. Plus, pastry chef Dory Greenspan is here. 20 years of extraordinary cookbooks and incredible cuisine. She's celebrating National Strawberry Shortcake Day. It's coming up. You're going to celebrate, right? With lots of sweet strawberry recipes. And we're applauding the movie release of Jersey Boys, adding a little bit of culture to your life this hour. Coming up next, not only are we sharing Frankie Valli's super secret meatball recipe, but Broadway star Marlena Dunn is here. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. There's more fabulous food right after this. Don't go away. all about living the best life food arts and theater so stay tuned you just might learn something chef jamie gwen in your radio we're going behind the music and inside the story today because there's just something about the sound of frankie valley and the four seasons how did four blue collar kids become one of the greatest successes in pop music history well, it's the runaway smash hit Jersey Boys, winner of the Best Musical Award on Broadway in London and Australia, the blockbuster phenomenon that takes you up the charts that will thrill your ears and delight your eyes. And we love to share the best of theater across the country. I am delighted to share with you Marlena Dunn. She is... Truly uh, close to a Jersey girl, having grown up in Philadelphia, an incredible musical theater performer. And she is currently on Broadway in her second national tour of Jersey Boys. This show being based in Southern California, I'm delighted to say that Jersey Boys is returning to Segerstrom Center for the Arts June 24th through July 13th. And you can find uh, Jersey Boys production in a city near you by going online. But we're going to take a minute to dish and better get to know this beautiful performer. Marlena, it's a pleasure to meet you. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yes, of course. Okay, talk to us about Jersey Boys, if you would, because you're Philadelphia-born and raised. Pittsburgh. Actually. Pittsburgh. Ah, okay, thank you. Other side of the state. Clo- close enough. But yeah. <laughs> uh, what is it like to be a Jersey girl? I mean, this is probably the most exciting uh, Broadway musical we've seen in a lot of years with such great success. Absolutely. It's kind of cool being one of only three women on stage with a bunch of very strong, dominant men, you <laughs> yes. know. 
and they're all fabulous at what they do. I grew up with all boys, so it's kind of like having 12 brothers around me, you know? (laughs) What is it like to listen to the beautiful harmonies of Big Girls Don't Cry, Oh, What a Night, Can't Take My Eyes Off You, just steps away. I will say I've seen previous performances of Jersey Boys on Broadway. Oh, great. And it is just the most exciting, thrilling, takes you into the moment Broadway show, in my opinion. Absolutely. When I first saw it, I mean, I cried several times the first (laughs) time I saw the show. And when it ended, I said, I will be in that show. And every night, it's you never get sick of hearing the songs. I love watching the audience, and even our dressers, our local crew that we pick up in every city that help wardrobe and the tech team, they'll be dancing and singing along too, you know? Mm. And I even will sit and watch the show in the wings at times. It's one of the most beautiful pieces of theater, and to close your eyes and listen to those four guys every night is really such a wonderful thing. Oh, it has to be. You have quite a background in musical theater. When did you realize you wanted to perform as a career? Actually, it didn't happen until my senior year of high school. I grew up playing sports my whole life, having brothers. I didn't think about anything other than sports. <laughs> but I always liked to sing. And so I started doing the musicals in high school. And when I was 16, I took my first dance class. And I realized it was a little different than swinging a softball bat, for sure. <laughs> for sure. Then I realized that I loved it. One of my favorite things about what we do is that we can take people away on this crazy journey for two hours. And they don't think about their everyday life, you know, because we all need that. We all need a moment of Mm. stepping away and enjoying something else and not worrying or thinking about what we have to do in the next hour, day, month, year, whatever, you know. I agree with you. It's the great escape. And that's the beauty. I was very privileged. My mom introduced me to theater very early on. And there's something I love as well about sort of taking you away where you're captured in the moment and you have that wonderful escape and when you can appreciate the beauty of Broadway and theater and I love musicals then you just get totally sucked in I wonder Mm -hmm. what you love about the role Mary Delgado she is a spitfire there is no doubt oh yeah yeah uh, that's a great way to explain her (laughs) she she is a a woman you do not want to get in the way of Um, but what is it like to play the role it is a lot of fun it's so much fun she's funny she's body. She, yeah. She'll put you in her place. But one of the most beautiful things about her is that the beautiful arc that Rick Ellis wrote that she is. She, you know, she starts from this like sarcastic, I'm going to rip Frankie apart and make fun of him and laugh at him, even though I really love him. <laughs> and then you see what the strain that him being on the road has on their marriage. And then at the end, they kind of come back together and it's just, it's, it's beautiful. I don't want to give too much away, so I can't really go into crazy detail, but she's a wonderful arc, which allows me as an actor, even though it's a small part, to find those beautiful moments with Frankie and really strive to make them very real. I love that perspective. I love that you love food too, by the way. (laughs) You do. You love to eat. I know that. And although you eat clean and healthy, I was thrilled to watch you make Frankie Valli's meatballs. The cast of Jersey Boys was featured on morning shows across the country, in fact, putting together a recipe for Frankie Valli's secret meatballs. Yes, they are so good. So delicious. One of the little things that we like to throw out, too, is that there are four seasonings in the meatballs. Yes, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We've posted them at chefjamie.com so that you, too, can make Frankie Valli's meatballs. 
I know you grew up in a household of good food. Do you have a great food memory, something that your mom used to make that you still crave? Yes, I have a couple. And actually, I was so lucky to go home last week. We were playing oh. Cleveland, Ohio. How nice. And my mom said, what do you want? And I said, tuna noodle casserole. <laughs> and so you had it, right? I had it. Love it. There's exciting news. Of course, the national Broadway production touring of which you're in, but the fact that Jersey Boys, directed by Clint Eastwood, is coming to a movie theater near us. Uh, it opens yes. on June 20th. So it's a double whammy, in fact, um, for us here in Southern California with you coming with the production as well. But what's your thought on the movie? Have you seen it? Um, had an experience? I know Clint Eastwood was involved, in fact, with many of the theater performers like yourself that have been performing Jersey Boys on Broadway. Yes, he went around to some of the productions to get a view of the show and whatnot. But one of the things that I think is so wonderful is that a lot of the actors in the film have done stage productions, be it on Broadway, in Chicago, one of the national tours, you know. And the day the trailer came out, right down to the second, we all were waiting for it to see. So we're all really excited and the Mary Delgado in the film, Renee Marino, she was on the first national tour, and then she was on Broadway, and he saw her do it on Broadway and brought her in, and she and I, you know, we've just chatted and stuff on mm. Facebook, but it's just, it's so exciting, because this is such a family that we have in Jersey Boys, be it a production here in the States, or in the UK, or Holland, or South Africa, you know, we have productions all over the place, but to see it now on the film, I mean, I'm sure you can hear the excitement in my voice. Yes, I can. I'm, Thoroughly excited. <laughs> we can definitely hear the excitement in your voice, and we can't wait to see that excitement radiate on stage. We are delighted that Jersey Boys continues its national tour. Marlena Dunn is currently in her second national tour of Jersey Boys as Mary Delgado, performing on Broadway and in Broadway productions across the country. You can find a city near you at jerseyboysinfo.com. The musical returns to Segerstrom Center for the Arts in Southern California, June 24th through July 13th. And you can visit scfta.org to learn more about show tickets. And I think if you were to ask my favorite song, I think mine is Big Girls Don't Cry might be tied with Sherry. Do you have a favorite, Marlena? I love Can't Take My Eyes Off You and Moody's Mood. Moody's Mood is a very short song that Frankie does towards the beginning of the show. and It's, it's just so beautiful. Hmm. Okay. And in the scene, I just get to stand and watch him sing it. <laughs> I'll, I'll listen for it, and we can't wait to see you on stage. From the streets of New Jersey to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, it is the musical that is too good to be true. Jersey Boys continuing its national tour. Marlena, it was a pleasure. Thank you for sharing a little bit of Thank the arts so much, with Marlena. us. Yes, of course. There's more intriguing, insightful, and often delicious conversation in your radio right after this. Don't touch your dial. Gain culinary intelligence right here and right now. This is True Culinary Exploration. Chef Jamie Gwen, along with Lana, in your radio. I am so delighted that we are joined once again by this writer and editor who for nearly 40 years has watched and shared the changing history and culture of food in America and around the world with all of us who love to cook and love to eat. 
We've seen the growth of Nouvelle Cuisine and Fusion Cuisine. He has shared with us the explosion of organic and locavore movements. He was one of the first, if not the first, to talk about nose-to-tail eating and bring Fergus Henderson to our attention. And he has shared much of molecular gastronomy in his close relationship and his beautiful stories of Ferran Adria and his knowledge of Spanish cuisine and Il Bulli. He is Coleman Andrews, and his new book release is just a great read. I'm not sure what else to say, but to tell you, you will be so captivated that you might not be able to put the book down. He joins us once again, and as I mentioned, I'm delighted. Coleman Andrews, the co-founder of Savour Magazine, its editor-in-chief from 2002 to 2006, the restaurant columnist you remember for Gourmet Magazine, and the current editorial director of The Daily Meal, the food and wine website that we love. He's the recipient of eight James Beard Awards, and he is sharing his memoir, A Life of Food, called My Usual Table. And Coleman, welcome back, and congratulations. It really is a fabulous book. Well, thank you very much. It's good to be back. Yeah, Lana and I are glad to have you. Um, start at the beginning, if you would, because th- there's a, a wonderful mention in your author's note that I was very taken by, and what it must have took to put this book together. You say, and I quote, I have thousands of pages on lined school paper, yellow legal tablets, filling dozens of hardbound books with something close to 250,000 words. These are all your food notes from over the years? Well, they're food notes and wine notes, but they're also notes about where I went, travel notes, notes about what people said. And mm. they always say, if you go out with a writer or you're friends with a writer or married to a writer, you have to be really careful because writers are, <laughs> it's all material, you know, and for uh, reasons both professional and personal, I just wrote everything down. I think it's from really, uh, yeah, from the beginning, I think it's a really amazing feat to go back and recount much of that and then take the stories in your head and share them as poignantly as you did. You mentioned that you grew up in restaurants, but it's not that you were a restaurateur family. Right. Yeah. When Usually when people say they grew up in restaurants, it's because, you know, mom and dad owned a restaurant. Right. And, uh, but with me, it was a little different. My dad was a screenwriter in, uh, in Hollywood, and my mom was what they used to call an ingenue. She was kind of window dressing in movies. Uh, I don't think she ever had a speaking part. But she was in a lot of movies, and they were the perfect restaurant goers because my dad made pretty good money as a writer, and my mother couldn't cook. I mean, it, it was, it, I was about 15 before I knew that roast beef wasn't gray inside. Ah, novel fact. And something to be said for Hollywood royalty, or, or at least close, because you definitely were entertained and you dined in those circles. Um, each Definitely. chapter is dedicated to a restaurant uh, and an experience of yours having grown up. But really, I think uh, a beautiful homage to the legendary restaurants that we know and love, especially since this radio show stems from Southern California. And I remember as a little girl going to Chasen's with my mom, whom everyone knows is Lana. And I I think the story of Chasen's is a legacy that will never be lived down. It was really a magical place. And I think if I went in there today and had the food that was served then, I I might find things to criticize about the food or whatever. But it wasn't about that. It was, I mean, the food was good, but it it was the whole atmosphere and the whole feeling. When you walked in that door, it was was like entering another world. And uh, the Hollywood crowd liked it because... Mm -hmm. 
they could go and relax and you know they misbehaved there but not in today's sense of the way no, celebrities no. misbehave no. the actor who played the wizard of oz did a strip tease on the bar at Chasen's one time and uh, oh, I wasn't you know, there for that no i wasn't <laughs> there that that, that's the story though and people could just go in there and relax you know you wore a coat and tie or at least a, a jacket maybe not a tie uh, or the women wore nice dresses, but it wasn't a fancy, fancy place. Okay, you could just go in and sit in this comfortable booth, and and it was unpretentious, I think, is a good way to put it. Yes, very. it was magical, as you said. Yeah. There was something, an aura uh, that went across the room. And I always felt, uh, as the years must have progressed with Chasen's, it became like the the good old haunt, but it was seen be seen, like you said, in a very... Subtle, uh, subtle, subtle way. way. That's a good word yes. for it. And Trader Joe's. Uh, Trader Vic's. Excuse me, Trader, Trader Vic's. <laughs> we, we do have an addiction to Trader Joe's <laughs> yeah. today. Yeah, <laughs> the, the, the name is catchy. But Trader Vic's is the second mm-hmm. story, actually, in Coleman's book. And yeah. French Polynesian at the time was really very novel, wasn't it? Well, Polynesia was big in the 50s uh, because you had Thor Heyerdahl uh, ah, did the con- yes. Sail the Contiki, and there yes. was a book and a movie about that, and you had James Michener's uh, stories, Sales of the South Pacific. So that was kind of in people's minds, and it was kind of the beginning of the, the tiki craze. The Trader Vic's was not the original tiki restaurant. That was Don the Beachcombers, also in L.A. and Hollywood. But uh, Trader Vic really took it and ran with it. And the, the secret about that place was, though, it was really a very good restaurant. And mm-hmm. it sure. must have been one of the few restaurants in America that, I mean, all of the Trader Vic's, that were cooking on a live wood fire back then. Mm-hmm. That was unique back then. And, and Vic Bergeron, Trader Vic, introduced a lot of products to people. They're the first time I ever saw kiwi fruit or morel mushrooms, mm-hmm. limestone mm-hmm. lettuce. And he was always seeking out things. And food was really pretty good in addition to the kind of schlocky, uh, you know, theme surrounding. I think it's a wonderful story that you weave. And by the way, if you've just tuned in, you're late because he is Coleman Andrews and he's here. His new book release called My Usual Table, A Life in Restaurants is a food lover's dream book. It will give you chronologically the story of restaurants stemming not only from Southern California, but a across the country and around the world that Coleman has experienced, all of which have definitely um, formed his gastronomic life. And it is a, a beautiful story. Um, El Coyote Cafe, of course, I love reading uh, your prose about the rise of the Mexican food movement. And then Scandia, you speak about Wolfgang Puck. As Wolf, of course, a good friend. And I remember at 16, Coleman, working at Eureka, which was Wolfgang Puck's oh, first his, open kitchen restaurant. Yes. And his, his brew pub, yeah. His brew pub that was quite extraordinary. But when everyone called him Wolfie, you knew that you were a good friend. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was something. He was really the first, certainly in the modern sense, celebrity chef. Uh, And and I think he's, people forget now, it's so commonplace, but, you know, people criticized him when he opened Spago because he was a a well-known, as a French chef, capable of cooking very sophisticated food. And everybody said, he's wasting his talent. He's going to make pizza? That's a scandal. You know, but he knew exactly what he was doing. And he, he started a whole movement. It's amazing to me how long his legacy has lasted. He is one of those that has continued to reinvent himself. I believe, and the Spago Beverly Hills of today is as fast and furiously fabulous, I feel, as the original Spago. I mean, there'll always be legacy in the original Spago, but there's something to be said for the fact that 
Wolfgang Puck might never die. And the new Spago is very different from the original one, but I think it's one of the best restaurants in the country right now. I, I agree with you. I agree. From a writer's perspective, and one who has definitely chronicled for us the rise and hopefully uh, never a great fall of the culinary world. Can you give us your perspective as to where you think we are today? Well, I think there's just a tremendous amount of wonderful food out there and much better and much wider selection of things to eat than there used to be, both in terms of imaginative creative cuisine and traditional foods from all over the world. If you're in in New York or Southern California or any of the big cities and even many of the smaller towns now, you have access to uh, food from really all over the world, which I think is wonderful. One big change has been that restaurants used to belong to restaurateurs. Now they belong to chefs. Hmm. And uh, there's good and bad in that. You know, my parents, for all the times they went to Chasen's, uh, you know, once or twice a week, I guarantee you they never knew the name of the chef. No. And it wouldn't have interested them because the chef was a hired help. He was in the back. He was doing what Dave Chasen told him to do, basically. And the advantage of that from the diner's point of view is that there was this wonderful consistency so that when the chef changed, the restaurant stayed more or less the same. Today, when a new chef comes into a restaurant, of course, he doesn't want to cook the old chef's food, so everything changes. And I think that was good. On the other hand, the bad part was chefs were stuck in the kitchen and were treated like the hired help often and were not recognized for the artisans or the geniuses that they sometimes are. So that's a good thing that has come out of the uh, development of uh, cuisine. Certainly a far more fast-paced culinary world with all the change that we do see. And I think the molecular gastronomy, so much of which you have shared um, in your passion and connection to Farron Adria and Spain, while you speak about Paris and Rome in the book, and by the way, those were two beautifully told stories. I love um, the story of Rome and the actual journal posts that you shared. But if you would, leave us with your fascination and the pleasure I know that you experienced um, in Il Bulli and with Farron, of course, one of your James Beard award-winning books and one of my most favorite reads. Well, I mean, Farron Adria at El Bulli, which is now closed as a restaurant, is right. being turned into a kind of a foundation, but he rethought uh, the way people made food. And, and he, I, I said that he was the man who reinvented food. And in a way, he was. And, and uh, it's food that was not always wonderful, Sometimes it was strange, and he knew that. He wanted to provoke people. He wanted to make them think. He wanted to make them have strong reactions. But, but his influence has been tremendous because even people that have nothing to do with his kind of food have learned techniques from him, have learned a kind of uh, freedom and, and um, imagination that they didn't know they were allowed to have before. Mm-hmm. So he really has changed the restaurant landscape far beyond Spain and far beyond restaurants that cook, quote-unquote, molecular gastronomy. I agree with you wholeheartedly, and um, I think that your sharing the tales of the seminal restaurants and the great chefs and the restaurateurs of our time has um, given us a, a richer life in food, oh, and so we thank you. From food writer James Beard, award-winning cookbook author, co-founder of Savour Magazine, Coleman Andrews, his newest book release called My Usual Table, A Life in Restaurants. It is a memoir of a life lived in food, and it is truly uh, a wonderful read of Coleman's adventures for any food lover. Um, continued success to you, Coleman. We look forward to your future projects. Thank you uh, we much. will see you online, and we've excerpted, as we hope you don't mind, a piece from the book at chefjamie.com with a direct link so that you can bring my usual table 
into your home, to your couch, to your kitchen. Coleman, always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. There's more delicious conversation right after this. Don't touch your dial. Strawberry feels forever. It's delicious. It's divine. It's food and wine. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. And so delighted to share with you an extraordinary culinarian who is once again gracing this show. Why? Because June 14th marks National Strawberry Shortcake Day. Yes, next Saturday we will all be celebrating, right? And if you didn't know this, shortcake styles are like fashion. They do come and go. Well, Dory Greenspan's recipes are certainly not at all like fashion. They have spanned time and I will say they are some of the best in anyone's repertoire. Dory is certainly most loved in the industry and over the past 20 years has written 10 cookbooks, has won six James Beard and IACP awards, including Cookbook of the Year. She's here to share a few simple steps that can make all the difference in creating the perfect shortcake, whether it's mile-high biscuits or beautifully sweet macerated berries. She is America's baking expert, and Dory Greenspan joins us live. I'm so glad to have you back, Dory. Welcome. So good to be back with you again. Thank you. Yes, of course. We're talking about something we both love. I've never met anyone that doesn't love strawberry shortcake. It seems all American, like apple pie and a hamburger. I did my homework, Dory. I understand that the first strawberry shortcake recipe dates back to 1850. Well, when there were even strawberry shortcake parties. Oh, I love love that idea. Me too. So you did do your homework, and others can do their homework because there's a great timeline, Strawberry Shortcake Through the Years, um, on the Driscoll's website, driscoll's.com. Tell us what you'll be doing to celebrate National Strawberry Shortcake Day. Well, I started celebrating a little early, and I plan to celebrate (laughs) all summer, Um, but I created a new, uh, like a twist on the classic shortcake for um, Driscoll's and the recipes on their site. And it's called the Double Strawberry and Rose Shortcake. Mm. And I'm really excited about it because I only just learned that strawberries and roses belong to the same family. How interesting. So that floral, beautiful essence of strawberries you get when you slice sweet, you know, pure red strawberries in the middle of summer when you walk past the bowl in the kitchen and that aroma mm. wafts after you? Exactly. That gives me that sort of rose feeling. Okay, uh, take us through the recipe, if you would. Sure. So that was the inspiration, learning about that. I decided to build it on a buttermilk biscuit. Mm. The biscuit has lemon flavoring, and the flavoring is from zest. And what I do, and I do this every time I've got zest and sugar in one recipe, I grate the zest over the sugar, and then I use my fingertips to combine the two ingredients, to kind of mush them until the sugar is really infused with the flavor and the aroma of the zest. And so the lemon zest kind of gives a little pop to the biscuit, and the buttermilk makes it tender. And so it's a biscuit base, and then it has strawberries two ways. I use strawberries in a compote, so I quickly cook the Driscoll's berries in just a tiny little bit of sugar, and then when the compote is still warm, I put in pure rose extract, Mm. or you can use a tiny little bit of of, of rose water, and then I just hang out around the pot because it smells so good. (laughs) I was going to say. Really, you cool that, 
And that, you put a, a spoonful of that in the center of the biscuit, and the juices from the compote just seep into the biscuit. So you get the biscuit and strawberry flavor together. Mm. Whipped cream, because I always think you can't have a shortcake without whipped cream. Of course. And again, I flavored the whipped cream with a little bit of the rose extract, mm. and then topped with fresh berries. You can't really see the compote, so when you bite into it, it's a surprise. You have the soft berries, and then you have the fresh berries, and you've got the biscuit, which has the lemon and the strawberry flavor in it, and of course, the whipped cream. Okay, Dory, I'm, I'm dro- really excited about the recipe. I, I know, as am I. I'm drooling on the microphone. Uh, it sounds <laughs> luscious. I love all the textural components of it. I love the sliced fresh berries to contrast the richness of the jammy cooked berries. And because you are uh, the chef extraordinaire that we all go to for recipe knowledge, give us, if you would, please, just a couple of tips to making that perfect biscuit. Because the best biscuit is really an integral part of that tower of goodness. Jamie, you're absolutely right. So biscuits get their puff power from baking powder, from heat, and also from one of the <laughs> one of the hardest things for me to um, to do to be restraint. So when you're I mix biscuits by hand. I, I love doing if I can do anything by hand, I do. And so when you're cutting the butter, when you're incorporating the butter into the dry ingredients, you want to use cold butter, and you want to to cut the butter through the dry ingredients. As I said, I use my hands to do this so that it's not even. Think of a rocky road. You want like little flakes of butter, and then you want little chunks of butter. And when that biscuit dough goes into the oven, this, the water in the butter evaporates and provides steam, and so you get even more puff from that. So don't go overboard. Just mix it together until you have this rocky road, cold buttermilk, Stir just until the dough gets together. Knead it briefly, briefly, briefly. It feels so good you want to just knead it for the rest of the morning, but don't. (laughs) And then pat it out. And here's a really important part of biscuit making. When you cut the biscuit, bring your cutter down and don't twist it, don't twirl it, don't shake it. Just down straight and up straight. And that will keep the layers um, from kind of smearing around the edge of the biscuit and not rising. You'll get a higher rise if you just go straight down and straight up with your cutter. I think they're fabulous tips. I will say I was taught a long time ago by a pastry chef, up and down, up and down, don't twist. And I think it does does give you that gorgeous rise. Um, If you were to sit down next Saturday, National Strawberry Shortcake Day, with your Driscoll's Berries, your Double Rose Shortcake, You've certainly worked with, and uh, certainly some of the most lauded chefs in this country have had the opportunity to work with you, some of the biggest names in the food world. I'd love to know who you would share a strawberry shortcake with. Oh, I know exactly whom I would love <laughs> to share the cake with. Julia Child. Oh, I, I, can... I would love that. Julia, you know, I, I worked with Julia. I wrote Baking with Julia, and she was, um, she was a friend. And I, I miss her terribly. But she loved food. She just, she loved, she loved life. Mm-hmm. And I think sharing a strawberry shortcake with Julia, if we could share it in Paris, it would be even better. Oh, no doubt. Just, <laughs> wouldn't that be fabulous? It, it really would. That I, would I, be, 
such a treat. I can't imagine how extraordinary a Saturday that would be, Dory, but you've made our Sunday delicious. Your passion is so exuberant. It's one of the things I've always loved about uh, your uh, beautiful love of the food world and the fact that it is always so evident in the recipes that you make, in the, the pros that you use. Um, and it was, once again, my pleasure to have you back on the radio. Oh, so so thank you, thank, thank you, thank you. you. She is French in flavor and American in spirit. She is uh, the extraordinary culinarian known as Dory Greenspan, and she's giving traditional strawberry shortcake a makeover. Check out Driscoll's.com, D-R-I-S-C-O-L-L-S. Dot com. There's strawberry shortcake 14 ways. There's tips for fresher berries. There's red, white, and blueberries coming up on July 4th with all of our recipe planning um, and so much more. Dory, it's always a pleasure. The joy of strawberry shortcake will get us to your recipes as well. Thank you so much. Thank Dory. you. A pleasure, Dory. So that brings us to the end of another hour of delicious conversation. What can you expect from next Sunday's show? Well, all your favorite culinary gurus, your palate pals, the taste buds you love, kitchen crushes, and heroes of the hungry delivered fresh to an appetite near you. I'm always serving up seconds at chefjamie.com. I thank you for listening, and I'll leave you with this. It's what I like to call my last bite It's that last tidbit, that last ounce of really, truly scrumptious ideas when it comes to quick cooking and fast meals. And this is actually also all about a sweet ending to your meal. Summer has definitely been good to us very early prior to the official start date of summer because I bought the best blackberries this past week. And I will say one of my most favorite things to do with blackberries is a three-ingredient creamy blackberry frozen yogurt. The secret to this frozen yogurt is all about yogurt cheese. And if you haven't made yogurt cheese before, you take a quart, four cups of plain yogurt, and you pour it into a colander that's been set over a bowl lined with cheesecloth. You cover it with plastic wrap and you let the yogurt drain overnight in the refrigerator. What you will essentially release is the whey, the liquid from the yogurt, and you will be left with the most rich, luscious, delicious yogurt cheese you've ever had. Combine three cups of fresh blackberries, three cups of yogurt cheese, I do mine with Greek yogurt, by the way, and a can of sweetened condensed milk in your ice cream maker, and you have made the best creamy blackberry frozen yogurt you've ever tasted. I'm posting the ingredients once again on Facebook right now at Chef Jamie Gwen. You'll find me on Twitter and Pinterest as well. And be sure to tune in next Sunday when there's more delicious conversation in your radio. Thanks for listening. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off. I hope you continue to eat well. The preceding program has been brought to you by Taste Bud Entertainment.